Syncope is like the bane of your existence as an emergency physician. It comprises a huge number. I want to say it's about 10% of ER visits. The majority of it is totally benign. But there's a few folks that have a horrible, life-threatening condition that you absolutely cannot miss. And, and sorting them out from the benign is the real challenge of it. Like, I haven't been this horse all week. <laughs> and yeah, sit, I sit down here in this, in this very quiet, you know, kind of angry-looking closet. You know, it's a very Who knows what's going on in the world out there right know. now? Yeah, it could, actually, it could be zombies. We have we no idea. <laughs> Welcome to Medic Mindset. I'm Ginger Locke, and this is another episode in the Thinking Series. You may recognize the voice of the guest in this episode. He's Dr. Jason Pickett, and he's been in previous Medic Mindset episodes, and he has a podcast of his own, the Austin Travis County Office of the Medical Director podcast. He's met enough Medic Mindset listeners to know we are a brainy bunch, so he doesn't hold back when we ask him to share his knowledge. Listen in as we hunker down in a tiny closet, we pretended the world was on pause for an hour, and downloaded his brilliant mind of all things related to syncope. Let's start with the definition of syncope. The the definition of of syncope is a transient loss of consciousness associated with loss of postural tone, Mm -hmm. meaning you you pass out and you fall down. I was thinking about this because I'm like, well, you can have it while being seated. So I guess that would just be like slumping over. It could. Or if it happens like in the dentist chair, uh, which happens fairly often, so they're sitting upright and they lose that vascular tone, they uh, they pass out, but they don't lay down. You know, When you hit the dirt, then the perfusion to your brain gets restarted again. In the chair, if you're sitting upright, you pass out, that perfusion's not restarted, and then they have like a hypoxic seizure uh, from oh, that. Yeah. So a uh, really common thing that happens, and it's just what happens when you pass out and you don't get to lay down immediately mm-hmm. and, and uh, restore that perfusion. That explains why we often confuse seizure for syncope. Because the bystanders will tell you, like, no, they did a little twitching or something like that. What you just said is that people can have seizure-like kind of convulsing during syncope. That's exactly right. But as you lose that perfusion of the brain, then you can have that brief seizure activity, which is why so many times uh, syncope can be mistaken for a seizure. So can we bite off one of the things I wanted to talk about, which is how would you differentiate whether someone had a syncopal episode versus a seizure Invariably, somebody has a syncopal episode, they had a little bit of tonic-clonic uh, activity. Syncope, they, they may have some prodromal symptoms, like re- really brief. I felt tunnel vision, and that's them losing the perfusion to their retinal artery. Or they have feeling dizzy, lightheaded, feel like they're going to pass out. Seizures, they often, but do not have to, come with an aura. You know, strange smells, flashing lights, strange noises, that, uh, that kind of thing. The aura can sometimes be helpful in teasing that out, but sometimes for a first-time seizure, there is no aura or there was nothing that the patient recognized as the symptoms leading up to that uh, seizure. With syncope, you pass out and you should return to immediate normal mental status uh, after that, uh, that perfusion gets fixed. You lay down, and then your brain is perfused again. You're awake, alert, and oriented. Postictal, you've got a period of time of confusion, of unconsciousness. That's not syncope. Um, now, the one exception being a patient I saw yesterday, she 
had an event. I still think it might have been a seizure, but she face-planted right into the deck. Uh, just, you know, toppled like a redwood, face-planted right on, right on the sidewalk. Sometimes a, a minor traumatic brain injury could complicate that picture a little bit. But in general, syncope, you wake right up again and you're alert and oriented. Seizure, you have that post period, some confusion thereafter. Uh, there are some other things, weird head-turning movements, lip-smacking, eye-fluttering, those kinds of things that tend to be more associated with seizure. Also, incontinence. It's pretty rare to become incontinent if you have a syncopal event. And tongue-biting. Uh, also, anybody who, who drops, have them stick their tongue out at you and take a look at it, make sure they didn't, uh, uh, they didn't bite that. So you talked about this kind of ground-level fall face plant. So that gives me a chance to talk to you, who in a previous episode, you said that backboarding causes cancer. Backboards cause cancer. They absolutely do. (laughs) (laughs) This gives me a chance to hear from you a standard syncope, right? Ground level fall. Maybe they did. There is evidence that they hit their head. How do you approach the decision making of spinal motion restriction in that patient? Uh, First, by good exam. Uh, doing a good physical examination, see if they've got any midline bony tenderness, they have any neck pain, uh, do they have any focal neurologic complaints, even subtle ones. So this is somewhere that EMS as well as ER docs tend to get nailed is the patient with a spinal injury that has a little bit of tingling in their fingers or something like that. They can feel, they can, you know, they've got good equal grip strength, they're like, oh, okay, the neuro exam is fine, but they do have neurologic symptoms other things. Are they intoxicated or confused? So if they're still postictal, that counts as confused uh, to me. You can't really fully get the greatest history on them. And is that, just to interject, is that because the exam may not be reliable as far as neuro deficits, like peripheral motor sensory, um, they may just not be able to reliably report whether or not they have altered sensation or something like that? That's exactly right. Uh, And there's the distracting injury, which it's in the position paper that was recently released by the National Association of EMS Physicians and the American College of Surgeons Committee on Trauma. They mentioned distracting injuries, but the research that I've seen on distracting injuries is there really isn't such a thing. If the patient's alert and oriented, then they're able to tell you if their neck hurts, uh, if there was an injury. If you have a suspicion, they've got pain, they've got positive findings, anything like that, then perform spinal motion restriction, which includes securing them on, yes, a backboard's on that list, even though they cause cancer, a scoop stretcher, a vacuum mattress, or the ambulance cot. That does a sufficient job of minimizing movement. Now, somebody who has a fracture anywhere, I don't care if it's in your spine or your arm or your leg, you don't want to be moving it around all over the place. And it's the same thing with with spinal fractures. You, you don't want to be unnecessarily bending and twisting them and so forth. So you try to minimize that movement. And, and that's really what spinal motion restriction is about. Well put. I, okay. I have a question, unless you've got follow-up stuff that we've already started that you need to round out. The first thing I really wanted to say about syncope is that the vast majority of syncope is benign cause. It's a vasovagal response to something. It's orthostatic hypotension because they're a little bit dehydrated or they had a change in their medications or something like that. Those are the ones that lull us into a false sense of security. But there are a few red flags that should get you thinking, hmm, bad stuff uh, here. Uh, okay, so uh, seizure in a previously undiagnosed patient that never had a seizure before, never had a diagnosed seizure before. Uh, So some of those findings we just talked about uh, with seizure would be uh, among them. Beware the exercise provoked 
syncope, especially in a young person that is uh, hypertrophic obstructive cardiomyopathy or Brugada syndrome or something like that that is potentially life-threatening. They definitely need to work up for that. It's easy to say that the 17-year-old guy that is at football practice or basketball practice and passes out, like, oh, he's just, you know, running too hard. Like, mm, no, 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 no. If it's exercise provoked or they're you know, doing basketball or they're having sex or whatever, that really should be should be worked up. Now, I'm not talking about somebody who's 20 miles into their marathon, right? They have a perfectly good reason to pass out at that point. And you know, I'd be there probably like mile four, I'm pretty sure. Uh, but This is uh, like normal exercise. Beware of focal neurologic deficits. Anybody who has syncope and has unilateral weakness, unilateral numbness, anything like that. Folks who have a headache at the onset of syncope, they, oh my God, this headache and boom, they hit the ground. That is potentially a subarachnoid hemorrhage. So definitely need to work them up. Folks who are short of breath and that have syncope think, PE with them, and tachycardia, uh, or abnormal vital signs in general. A syncope, can you lose that postural tone, you get to the ground, and everything should normalize. If their vital signs are still abnormal, then that should lead you down the path of, of looking for uh, for other stuff. In general, beware the syncope and syndrome, syncope and chest pain, syncope and palpitation, syncope and shortness of breath, syncope and headache, uh, syncope and abdominal pain, syncope and back pain, uh, stuff like that, that uh, should get you thinking about some of those potentially life-threatening causes of syncope. The first thing you were listening were structural abnormalities in the heart or dysrhythmias. Can you talk about the workup you would expect a medic in the field to do to discover some of that? Sure. Uh, So getting a great history. What happened? What were you doing at the time? What symptoms did you have before this event occurred? Has this ever happened to you before? Have you ever passed out on the basketball court or while, uh, while exercising? Next, a physical, full neurologic exam, pulses, vital signs, and an EKG. I think really the EKG is painless, it's non-invasive, it's cheap, do it very easily. That can clue you into some things, but it does require some expert interpretation. It's not simply, are they having an MI? Now, certainly MIs can present as syncope and arrhythmias can as well, you know, VTAC being the one that we really are worried about. But other things, pre-excitation syndromes like Wolf-Parkinson-White syndrome or Longinon-Levine syndrome, if there are alterations in the QT, either a long QT or a short QT, uh, both of which are associated with arrhythmias, uh, Brigada syndrome, uh, or an epsilon wave that uh, indicates a right ventricular dysplasia, uh, arrhythmogenic right ventricular dysplasia. So some of these other sort of less common findings we don't tend to be looking for when we're just looking for ST elevation MI are some findings on the EKG that you can get that uh, can clue you in. So I had this 17-year-old kid who was in a car wreck. Talking to the paramedics, they say, actually, the car was in pretty good shape. He just drove off the road into a cornfield. There was really no damage, so airbags didn't deploy. And talking to the kid, he's like, I feel fine. No no pain, no injury, anything like that. And I asked him, what happened to you? And he said, I don't have any idea. I'm 
on a rural road. I'm driving 70 miles an hour on the road, and then suddenly I'm driving 70 miles an hour in a cornfield. And I don't know what happened uh, in between there. Like, oh, sounds like you passed out and did so without warning, which is, uh, which is another red flag. Somebody who drops without any warning at all, then that does suggest an arrhythmia. Did an EKG, and sure enough, type 2 Brugada syndrome, and he got his AICD uh, within the week. If you're thinking the syncope was caused by something cardiac, a dysrhythmia or a structural abnormality or something like that, Will you routinely use ultrasound in the ER? It depends on the presentation, uh, and it depends also on the skill with ultrasound. So most emergency physicians can do a fast exam, look for free fluid in the abdomen, look for pericardial tamponade, look for uh, tension in the thorax. It takes a bit more training to get comfortable with bedside echo. But if you can, if you can see wall motion abnormalities uh, with that or structural defects, then that can be helpful as well. How about heart tones? Uh, How about heart tones? This is an important thing. So aortic stenosis is a fairly common cause of syncope, particularly in the elderly because it is universal in the elderly. So aortic stenosis and subaortic stenosis, uh, which is really the hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, those affect your ability to get blood out of the left ventricle, to eject blood from the heart. And if your aortic stenosis is so bad and your heart's just working really hard to push that blood through that narrow aortic valve, then that may decrease that perfusion to the brain as well. Listening to heart tones is very important. If you get that blowing systolic murmur, then that suggests some valvular disease Uh, We say valvular disease in general, but really we're talking about aortic stenosis. If the person was seated when it happened versus standing when it happened, does that help you start classifying or does that raise your suspicions for some more than others? So the person who's uh, seated or laying down uh, when they have their syncopal event, then it's less likely that it was a postural change. Now, if somebody was laying down, then they get up and then down they go. Uh, Then uh, I'm thinking, okay, they just lost some, they lost some vascular tone and and dropped and maybe a little bit more benign. But if somebody's sitting there minding their own business, um, how were they positioned? Were they hunched over? Were they getting less blood flow back through their femoral veins because of the position that they were in or could it be something more worrisome, the, uh, the PE, the arrhythmia, something like that. By itself, it doesn't, it doesn't say a whole lot, but as part of the whole picture of what happened, then that does help. Now, it's easy, the 20-year-old military recruit who's standing in formation and face plants onto the deck, and he's hadn't had much to drink that morning because he didn't want to have to pee, and maybe he went out drinking the night before and didn't hydrate very well and so forth, and then he's standing there and locks his knees, and that blood flow uh, through those popliteal veins comes down to a halt, and then you lose your preload, then you lose your, your cardiac output, and then down you go. It's an extremely common event. For band people too, right? In the yeah, marching absolutely. band? Absolutely. Marching band, yes. Um, you, know, you, you do not want your woodwinds face planting. It's, it's not good for them at all. It doesn't do any good for the embouchure at all to kiss the ground. So if I suddenly passed out right now? Oh, uh, well, we're in a building full of paramedics, so I'm, <laughs> I'm going to get somebody to help me out here first. <laughs> You're not just going to sit and think, hmm, why did that happen? I, I probably would say, huh. Or, or for the listeners, I would narrate that as a, Ginger just passed out. <laughs> 
She is laying on the ground and twitching. The twitching, however, has only last for t uh, lasted for 10 seconds. This was likely syncope. <laughs> Hopefully you wouldn't catch it in the editing afterwards. <laughs> stay, stay in the episode. If you're sitting here and boom, over you go, passed out. It depends on like... Is it, was there something, some like emotional reaction or event that that predicated that? And that's vasovagal if it's emotional. It is. Uh, so it's vasovagal is emotional. And what happens is you have an emotional event. Their vagus nerve fires off and slows down the heart rate and over they go. Important to remember that vasovagal is a diagnosis of exclusion. It's benign and we're not worried about it, but we have to address some of these other potential uh, causes as well. Can we talk about the vasovagal for a second? Yeah, sure. Because this comes up when we're doing live sticks for the first time in class. At least one out of the 20 to 30 students will have some type of kind of sweaty, I need to lay down kind of event. That doesn't make sense to me. If they saw blood and they're excited, why wouldn't they get a sympathetic response? Why do we vagal down when we're seeing something scary? Usually we do the fight, flight, or freeze thing. And so I wondered if it was... In, Maybe you can help me. This is just a theory. Is it that we do get the sympathetic response, but then our parasympathetic maybe over-rebounds or something? I don't think we know why the vagus nerve fires off the way that it does. And keep in mind that that vagus nerve response will be a lot quicker than getting the signal to the adrenal glands to release epinephrine to then circulate through the body. That vagal response will happen immediately. And, and again, I have no idea why that is. I, I don't know what evolutionary advantage that conveyed to us that it's persisted within our DNA uh, to do that. Okay, so Ginger hits the ground uh, okay. in front of me. And after the initial wave of panic that comes over me, uh, and verify airway breathing circulation, uh, evaluate you for injury uh, from the fall, do a neurologic exam. And I'm, I'm assuming you're awake at this point. If you're not awake, it just treats you like an unconscious person. You hit the dirt, you're awake afterwards. Uh, so evaluate you for injury, uh, assess you for uh, any anything that happened on the way down. See what you remember about the event. Do you remember any symptoms that occurred right before this? Do you remember what happened? Did you go all the way out completely or not? Now, that's not that important. Somebody who actually fully syncopized, their differential diagnosis is the same as somebody who didn't. Um, did you have any symptoms beforehand? And then are you having any symptoms now? Um, part of the physical exam, full neurologic exam, and get into the, the past medical history. I ran a lot of these syncope calls. As you said, that we rerun a lot of them. I kind of had kind of script of things I would do on every patient, the EKG, the neuro exam. And I got a D-stick on these people. Why would I do that? It's funny because if they were hyperglyce uh, hypoglycemic, if they woke back up after being unconscious, then they got glucose or somehow mobilized some stores of it. But maybe they were a bit low and then they got up from standing and they dropped and they're still feeling woozy, et cetera, then they're still having symptoms, then hypoglycemia is on that uh, on that differential. And that's just such an easy, quick thing. There's, mm -hmm. there's certain things like don't miss this. Hypoglycemia is one of those. Somebody passes out, just check your sugar. Also helps you if their sugar is wicked high, then is this somebody who's in a hyperosmal or non-ketotic state and they're dehydrated and that leads you down another treatment pathway? Yeah, that's good. That's a good reason. I was thinking hypoglycemia at the time, but it actually makes more sense that the dehydration that would be associated with hyperglycemia. Going back to the EKG, is it fair to say every age 
any complaint of syncope gets an EKG. Uh, yeah, I think that's reasonable. Your chances of you catching an arrhythmia on there is, um, is zero. Um, but the chances of you picking up something else, again, with some of those more subtle findings, more chronic findings, left ventricular hypertrophy in the young person, the uh, pre-excitation syndromes, the brigada, the arrhythmogenic hyperplastic left right heart, rather, those kinds of things, the QT intervals uh, changes, long versus short. And we're seeing now that a lot of our medications cause QT changes, it's all of them, it seems, and a whole bunch of antibiotics, anything treat- that treats nausea or psychosis <laughs> lengthens the QT. So doing an EKG, Always a good idea. Again, it doesn't hurt. It's super fast. It's cheap. And continuous monitoring after that, because I guess you you actually could catch someone braiding down or getting a little bit of a heart block or runs a VTAC or something. You could, and it depends. You don't you don't necessarily have to monitor every single person that has syncope. If you've got a great history and physical, and you know, here's this young, healthy patient with no previous episodes, then we do the EKG and say, okay, you're probably going to be fine. I'll never say never, but usually if you think that arrhythmia factored into your differential somewhere, then just keep them on continuous cardiac monitoring. And that includes keeping them on monitoring from the ambulance into the ER till you turn them over onto the ER stretcher because that is where patients love to decompensate is right between the ambulance and the ER when you don't have them on the monitor and then the nurse looks at you like you're an idiot and you're like, no, really, it was fine. The rhythm was fine. Like, well, they're in VTAC now. Patients do that. They do that there between the ambulance and and the room, or they do it in the CT scanner, otherwise known as the donut of death. (laughs) (laughs) Along those lines, this is advice that was given to me is for somebody who's had syncope, a critical time for us is wherever you find them, in the couch, in the car, on the floor, any postural change, when when you move them, things might change. I was given the advice, if if you're going to put them on an EKG, put them on that before you start moving them. And it's just a guideline, but it, I think that medic had seen an, enough times where they try to pick the person up or stand the person up or move them out of the car that things just change because of the posture. Could change because of the posture or they, as they are working themselves off the couch as you're standing them up to pivot them onto the stretcher, then they just you know, bear down a little bit and their rhythm goes, down and they they braid you down and say, oh, okay, you know, now I know what's going on. That brings me around to orthostatic vital signs. Orthostatic vital signs are generally not helpful. The sensitivity and specificity are really poor, like 50 to 70%. So you might as well flip a coin. You can't effectively rule anything in or rule anything out with orthostatic vitals. It does a good job of proving what you kind of already know, like, oh, well, they're, they look kind of dehydrated, and so I'll do orthostatic vitals. See, they're dehydrated. Overall, not terribly helpful for you in the acute setting. And what do we mean by orthostatic? So we're defining this orthostatic hypotension as a drop in the systolic of 20 or more points, the diastolic 10 or more points after standing for at least three minutes, and there's orthostatic reflex tachycardia, which is a heart rate increase of 30 beats per minute or greater. The problem is, and I'm looking at 
this review here done by Spoonfeed, uh, which is really great. If you go to journalfeed.org, sign up for the Spoonfeed. It's awesome. Every day, you know, breakdowns of studies in your in your inbox, really quick and easy to read. So they're like synopses. Yeah. They're spoon feeding you. Exactly. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, synopses. Like this is what we think of the study, or here's the here's the the good and the bad of the study and limitations. In this one that uh, came out January 11th of this year. So orthostatic hypotension was present in 30% of patients over 70 years of age, uh, was noted in 25% of all comers to the emergency department, and was found in 50% of nursing home residents. So already orthostatic hypotension is there in a huge population. So whatever's wrong with your patient, they come in, they have orthostatic hypotension. It's like, well, maybe they just fell into this this, uh, other... The nursing home ones, you think they're saying that's their baseline? Yes. And that's not surprising. If you're laying around all day, you'll you'll probably notice you get up, you get a little woozy. And folks who are generally bed-bound for most of the day, most of their life, and mo- most of their daily life, then they may have a little more... A little more trouble as they uh, as they get up. There was a review in the Journal of the American Medical Association that found that orthostatic vital signs did not have any diagnostic utility in determining dehydrated versus non-dehydrated patients, but it did reliably predict patients who had lost a significant amount of blood, like greater than 630 mLs of blood. So if you lost more than half a liter of blood, then orthostatic vital signs were helpful. Hopefully, if they've lost more than half a liter of blood, you've noticed it in some other way, like the black stools or vomiting blood or vaginal bleeding or, or on the CT scan when their aorta ruptured. <laughs> Let's talk about dehydration. A medic would discover dehydration from the story, the history of intake and output, and then the physical exam would be things like skin turgor, oral mucosa, conjunctiva, Skin turgor is a very late sign. That's somebody who's the sunken eyes, the dry mouth. The layperson could look at them and say, wow, you're dehydrated. The dry oral mucosa, I do find helpful. Conjunctiva, I find less helpful. General skin tone, general impression, like when I walk into the room and look at somebody, uh, looking at their skin tone, like, oh, you, don't, you look like a, you're a little peaked. What, wait, say for the listener what peak it is. Uh, so, gosh, like pale, but look like they don't feel good. They just don't look like they feel, they're a little bit pale. They look a little sunken, a little, yeah. That's, I can't, I can't give you a good definition. It's, uh, uh, I know, I wanted to watch you squirm around I, with that one. It, it worked. It totally worked. <laughs> <laughs> this is the challenge of asking an expert to explain what they see to somebody who wants desperately to know what you're seeing. This is it. This is the, all the listeners get to hear an expert not being able to put into words what they've consolidated. That's very kind of you to refer to me as an expert. But <laughs> I didn't say an sure. expert of what. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure some of my, uh, some of my academic colleagues are like, amateur. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that, uh, but they, you know, they kind of don't look right to you. But what, is, uh, what does the urine look like? Uh, they've got darkened urine. They're concentrating. They're not peeing that much. When we're talking to parents of young children, we say, oh, how many wet diapers has the child had? And usually about five wet diapers a day is normal. As I found, generally that number of urines a day is normal for an adult too. Uh, so uh, if you peed at least five times a day, yes, I have, and their blood sugar is not 400, then I uh, feel okay about their hydration status at that point. Since I know you've been tinkering around with ultrasound, I'm going to say a sentence, but it's the, it's the end of my knowledge at the end of the sentence. I've heard where you can look at the the vena cava, the inferior vena cava, I believe, 
and get a sense of how full it is? You can, and, and this is one of the findings that's taught. You take a look at the vena cava, and you have the patient do a sniff test, and you say, just you know, sniff, like inhale really hard through your nose, like, like that. The idea is you suddenly decrease the intrathoracic pressure, and more venous blood goes into the chest. So if the vena cava, if it collapses more than 50%, then there's not a whole lot of preload there because you just emptied all the preload into the chest when you did that sniff. If it collapses like 25 to 50%, then that's normal. And if it collapses less than 25%, then maybe they're fluid overloaded. That's the theory behind it. I think it has been debunked um, more recently in the literature that shows it's maybe not uh, as uh, helpful or predictive as we thought. Hmm, interesting. And that 25%, 50%, is that all qualitative visual estimate or is it a number that somehow you're getting? Oh, you actually measure the IVC. The diameter? Yeah, you, free, you, have, you freeze it and measure the diameter of the IVC. All right. Neat. Thanks. Uh, sure. Thanks for indulging uh, that. I'm trying to learn all I can about ultrasound. I'm going to take a class. There's a, a group called EMS POCUS, Point of Care Ultrasound. They, they travel around and do classes and I got to get in their class because it's the way things are going. I, and I want to know before all my students know before me. Well, there are some other things you, you will find on ultrasound that will be helpful in syncope. Getting a look at the heart, is there a pericardial effusion? So if you have significant pericardial tamponade, then that can cause syncope. If your right ventricle is blown out and it's not emptying at all, then you have to consider a PE because that right ventricle is pumping blood into the pulmonary arteries. If there's a big clot there that's preventing that flow, then that right ventricle is going to be dilated and not uh, not emptying out appropriately. If you have free fluid in the abdomen, so you have to consider things like ectopic pregnancy. Any woman of childbearing age with syncope gets a pregnancy test. You know, like if there's any possibility at all of pregnancy, then she gets a pregnancy test and pregnancy itself can cause syncope and then a ruptured ectopic pregnancy could be life-threatening. Looking at the aorta, looking for signs of AAA uh, will be helpful. If you're really good at ultrasound, you can actually pick up some thoracic aortic dissections on ultrasound as well. It's not really the the standard uh, for it unless you're doing a transesophageal echo, which I don't really see us doing in the field in the, in the near future. Sometimes in, when you get that suprasternal notch, uh, view down and you can sometimes catch a thoracic dissection. Mm-hmm. Like in the arch? Mm-hmm. Exactly. I was surprised at how close the aortic arch is to that anatomical location. In my mind, it would be more inferior, but it's it's just right there. It is. You know, it's funny because we, we think of it that way, I think, because a lot of times we look at chest x-rays that are shot from posterior to anterior, mm-hmm. in which case the clavicles, everything else is pushed lower on the image. So it looks like the aortic knob in the heart is, is lower than it actually is. But relative to the front of the chest, yeah, things are right up there. Yeah, and I learned that when someone I know had a aortic aneurysm one of his presenting signs, like in the, I think the months before they discovered it or the weeks before they discovered it, was this hoarseness that he had. Mm-hmm. Like it was just pushing on the structures of vocalization. Huh. Now everybody's going to be going to the ER with yeah. hoarseness. Like, <laughs> I'll delete that part. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like, oh, I'm hoarse. It might be a thoracic aortic dissection. Like, no, I think you're going to be okay. I'll yeah. delete that part. <laughs> you're 15 years old. I think. You think you're going to be fine. Um, just, you know, drink water, take motion, change your socks. You know, the paramedic that does, well, we better go get, take you to the ER to get checked out routine. What are the important things that 
are more commonly done in hospital that we just don't have the tools for? So that's a great question. And the, that medic who's like, well, we better take you to the hospital to get checked out. After an episode of syncope, I think that's actually warranted. I think that's a good idea. If you know me, I'm not a, like, let's take everybody to the hospital kind of person. But in syncope, because those other life-threatening diagnoses can present with syncope, it seems like every life-threatening thing, one of the presenting symptoms is syncope. What are some of the things that we're going to do at the hospital? When you're counseling a patient, they passed out like, no, I'm fine. I'm okay. I don't really need to go to the hospital. And not everybody who refuses transport do we have to terrify. <laughs> like we don't have to say, well, it uh, could be this uh, impending death and it's coming. You don't have to necessarily do that. But some shared decision making and advising the patient that most of the time this is benign. It's a matter of just hydration or a little benign vasovagal thing. But every once in a while. Yeah, that's why I asked the question because my preference would be is that the medic says that and they know what kind of have a sense of the additional tests that need to be run or things that they might investigate in the ER so they can coach the, the patient or the patient's family about that. Things that we'll do, we'll do a pregnancy test, we'll get a hemoglobin. You can have somebody that has a sm slow smoldering GI bleed that they were not aware of and their hemoglobin comes back and it's six. You know, like, oh, okay, so they not only need a transfusion, but they need significant workup for that blood loss and making sure that there's not a pregnancy and B, it's not in the wrong place, and maybe that's and that's why it's happened. Uh, getting an ultrasound uh, of the heart. Not all of the workup is necessarily going to get done in the emergency department. We may do some shared decision-making if the patient is medium risk, I'll say. I'm not going to say low risk. If they're truly low risk, you just send them home, they're fine. But the, the medium risk patients, the 50-year-old that has type 2 diabetes, so they have some potential risk factors, some comorbidity, but that's not a slam dunk to admit them, then a little bit of shared decision-making with the patient and close outpatient follow-up with the cardiologist. Electrolytes may or may not be helpful. If I suspect something, sure. I do not like the whole just get labs for the sake of getting labs. Like, you're in the ER, so I'm going to get labs. Let's not waste the patient's money. But if I think there's something there, then absolutely, we'll, we'll get some electrolytes, check a kidney function. But the hemoglobin is a very important thing. When you're counseling the patient and they're not inclined to go to the ER with you, think about those red flags, the severe headache, the chest pain, the focal neurologic symptoms, uh, the uh, bleeding black tarry stools, been throwing up blood, vaginal bleeding, abdominal pain, back pain. So the syncope and because that steers you more towards the potentially life-threatening illness, the syncope that occurs without warning. I didn't feel anything like I'm just, I woke up on the floor and I have no idea how I got there. And first-time seizure. Not that first-time seizures are always scary. Most of the time they're really not scary, but we do need to work that out, make sure it's not a tumor or bleeding or something like that that's uh, caused that. So if they're, they're completely healthy, they don't have a history of CHF, and their EKG is normal but doesn't show all these other things that we talked about, and if you don't know what uh, WPW or lung levine or long QT or short QT or Brigada syndrome or Epsilon waves look like, then please look up all those things and, and put, make that part of your, your practice pattern. I'm going to put that in the show notes, um, probably using the great website, uh, Life in the Fast Lane, that's got rules for all of that. They do. Great uh, reference. That is an awesome, awesome website. Uh, and if the patient's not still symptomatic, so we've ruled out all of that kind of stuff. We still want them, look, there's a lot of things that could 
be going on here that don't know. And if you're elderly, that uh, that suspicion for life-threatening stuff goes way up immediately. You say, look, if these are the, some of the potential things that it could be, it could be nothing. But um, here are the things that I'm worried about that we can't work up in the field. Mm-hmm. Do you have a primary care doctor? Can I call them for you? Place a phone call to the PCP, express their concerns uh, to the PCP. It's a lot easier when it's the paramedic that's calling and the the, uh, the doctor's like, okay, I'm getting a call from the patient, but no, I'm getting a call from a paramedic at my patient's house that has concerns and objective findings that uh, that we can talk More about. More likely than, to get them on the phone, don't you think? Like yes. A quick response? Yes. I mean, usually outpatient doctors, the echelons of other personnel that work at the office do a really good job of protecting the doctor from the patient. Yeah. Uh, but uh, it's <laughs> easier a as, a, it. <laughs> as a medical provider, it's, it's easier to, to uh, pierce through those and Hey, this is paramedic so-and-so. I'm calling about one of his patients. I need to talk to him. Right. Then That's kind uh, of an unusual, dramatic phone call to get, I imagine, like at a typical doctor's office. Um, happens more often than you might okay. uh, think because you get calls from the uh, from the ER all the time. Mm-hmm. Hey, I've got one of your patients oh, okay. at the ER. This is what we have going on, and I'd like to maybe see if you can see them in the office and we can avoid mm. an admission, um, which is a very frequent strategy with syncope, uh, too. Yeah. So we'll, get, we'll get them out of here. Let's get them to your office. But we're ensuring that follow-up. That's the uh, that's the key thing. From an EMS provider's perspective, it is a lot of times harder when you're cutting them loose there because you really can't guarantee follow-up unless you've got a really good community paramedic system uh, your community health paramedics, the uh, chips uh, like we've got here, where we actually can ensure some amount of follow-up. We can get some labs. We can get a home visit by the doc, uh, that uh, that kind of thing. But if you don't have that, then then, then that's really hard to ensure that uh, that kind of follow-up. And then you stress the potential bad things that could occur, and you encourage them to, if you change your mind, I definitely want to hear from you again. I would love to see you again. We'll be happy to take care of you. Mm-hmm. Uh, make sure the patient doesn't mm-hmm. think that you'll be mad at them if you come back. Yeah. Leave that door uh, open for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, or if you don't want to go with me, and I understand you don't want an ambulance bill, I get it. But at least uh, if somebody else can take you uh, mm-hmm. to the hospital or to your doctor uh, first thing in the morning or something like that, please do that. The ambulance should just take them to the doctor's office. So uh, th- I think that's the direction that we're going with EMS. Uh, that's uh, uh, I think that the send a, a big ambulance full of critical care capable paramedics to every single call, lights and sirens, and take every single patient to the ER. I think that, that model is uh, going to die off for a large portion of our patients, and we're going to really more get them what they need. Mm-hmm. You know, what do they need? We need to ensure follow-up and we can use these outpatient resources. We can navigate this complex system of resources that we have to help patients. And I think we as EMS can do a much better job of that. Uh, Life-threatening causes of syncope. Generally, we'll fall into cardiovascular, neuro, and bleeding. Uh, volume loss. So cardiovascular. Arrhythmia is the big one. VTAC is the one that I was thinking about, you know, potentially lethal arrhythmia, but also pre-excitation syndromes, WPW, think about uh, those as well. Cardiac ischemia. So if you have an MI, then that can drop your cardiac output briefly or even cause a transient arrhythmia. Definitely don't miss that one. 
and then aortic stenosis or subaortic stenosis or Holcomb, uh, then those uh, structural diseases are in there as well. So that's cardiac. When you get to vascular thoracic aortic dissection or pulmonary embolism. Why are you being specific to thoracic aortic aneurysm? Usually with a AAA, we got some time. Depending on how big it is, we may just ma- manage it medically. But thoracic aortic dissection can cause a variety of other syndromes. So you dissect into the common carotid artery, you can cause a stroke along with it. So beware of chest pain plus stroke, right? So you'd rather have an abdominal aortic aneurysm than a thoracic one? I'd rather have neither one, to be quite honest. Uh, but if I was going to have one of them, I'd like to have the abdominal, and I would like to have it diagnosed early. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you can also dissect into coronary arteries and cause an ST elevation MI. So about 1% MIs, STEMIs, are actually thoracic dissection into that. And unfortunately, most of the time, we'll, we'll do a chest x-ray to see if we can eke that out, and hopefully it shows up on there. But we don't really chase that down with CT scans and so forth because, again, it's 1%. So they go to cath lab, and it's like, um, oh, I'm having trouble getting this wire in into this coronary artery because it's dissected into it, and they, so they figure it out then. One percent's actually a lot because that's a pretty unique anatomical phenomenon, really. And one to two percent is basically the commonly accepted miss rate in emergency medicine of various diseases. So we know that we are going to miss some diseases. We're going to miss some strokes. We're going to miss some MIs. We do the best that we can to make that number zero, but we know it's not going to be zero. At what point do we say, okay, we need to rethink what we're doing? If we're missing more than 1% to 2%, then we probably need to rethink things. So <laughs> cardiac and cardiovascular, so arrhythmias, oh, yeah. um, WPW, uh, aortic stenosis also on that uh, on that list, uh, ischemia, Hawkeum. Um What are you saying, Hawkeum? Hypertrophic obstructive cardiomyopathy, uh, so Hawkeum. Hawkeum. Uh, Hawkeum horns. <laughs> uh, so then think your neuro stuff, stroke seizure, subarachnoid hemorrhage. The person who has that thunderclap headache and passes out, that is a red flag for subarachnoid hemorrhage. They need a CT scan and possibly an LP. And then bleeding, uh, ruptured ectopic, GI bleed, AAA, that, uh, that volume loss. Now, there's the San Francisco syncope rule, which sometimes helps us with patients in the emergency department. Unless you're doing point-of-care testing in the field and you're really good at EKGs, then it may not be as as helpful. But we use this chest mnemonic. So C is for CHF, so any evidence of cardiac failure or history thereof. H is for hemoglobin of less than 30. E for EKG abnormalities. Uh, and again, that's not just ischemia, but it's those other things we talked about as well. S for shortness of breath. Again, if they, they had syncope and they have ongoing shortness of breath afterwards, that's not just syncope. They've, they've got an ongoing problem. And then a systolic blood pressure of less than 90. So those five things, CHF, hemoglobin less than 30, EKG abnormalities, shortness of breath, systolic pressure less than 90, can help you eke out some of the patients that you really don't want to let go home. But by no means is that all of the patients with syncope that could have a potentially life-threatening issue. Clicking positive to any of those five will put somebody in a higher risk category as far as you're concerned, and then you're more likely to get admitted. And with each additional one, it's additive, like more and more risk if you have more of those? Um, my take is if, if you've got one of those, then you're coming in. Any one of those by itself is, is sufficient. If you passed out and you're short of breath, yeah, then I, I'm admitting you. Uh, Are you thinking the PE hospital. there or anything else? Exactly. Yeah, thinking PE or cardiac ischemia. I've said this before. I think. Uh... I guess it was the chest pain episode with Brandon Bleese. PE comes up so much more in talking to you guys than it ever did in my paramedic education. It seems like 
you guys are diligently screening for that. My old uh, chairman, uh, where I went to residency, uh, Glenn Hamilton, who is an, an amazing clinician, he said, you can never win with PE. It just it sneaks up on you in all these cases. And I, I can think of all these cases that I've had where I went down this path of working somebody up and <laughs> there's a PE. I'm like, huh, <laughs> well, what do you know? You know, there there it is. And even had a, a mentor of mine, a good good friend, a physician who's taught me a, a hell of a lot about uh, everything in, in emergency medicine, had a PE. He, he had traveled, uh, but he had uh, flown, but it was not a long flight. We usually say like three and a half hours is kind of the point where you start thinking about the car trip or plane ride being a risk factor for PE. He'd had a trip, but he hadn't uh, – uh, it wasn't a particularly long one. And he got back to the house, and he's like, I just felt achy. You know, I just felt achy all over the body, and – he was carrying the bags upstairs. They said, I'm halfway up the stairs, and it just hit me like a freight train. I, just, I had to sit down for a moment on the chair, on the uh, stairs. Caught his breath and then resumed, took him upstairs. He's like, oh, thank God my wife didn't see me because then she would have had me go to the hospital immediately. He then worked two shifts in the emergency department and then got home and is like, okay, I need to go to the hospital. <laughs> Tells his wife, you got to take me to the ER. Sure enough, had a big PE, actually bottomed out his blood pressure, was in the ICU, was deadly, deadly sick. You know, here he is, an extremely astute clinician, and mm -hmm. PE snuck up on him. And they can be slow like that? Is the word chronic? If it's lasting over two or three days, it's just not getting worse? Well, the, the clot can propagate, or you can cut loose more clot from where, uh, from where it originated Clot tends to beget more clot and then mm -hmm. uh, and then get broken down. But uh, if you throw that big clot in your leg into the lungs and then more clots start showering up that way, then the uh, yes, you you can certainly get worse. But how did he last so long? Like two days? Is it just was it small enough that it didn't? Well, I think it's because he's tough as a bag of bricks, you know. I mean, the guy's, you know, guy's hard as woodpecker lips is part of it, I think. <laughs> um, the initial PE, it may be devastating if you have a giant saddle embolism that goes in and becomes immediately hemodynamically uh, significant. But it may not. You may get smaller PEs that, uh, that get thrown in there, and they're not that hemodynamically significant. Or you compensate very, very well, and then mm. after a period of time, your body's like, okay, I'm tired of this. I can't do this anymore. Okay. I, can't, I can't do it anymore. <laughs> I can't. I can't. You ask so much of me and give nothing in return. <laughs> There's your sound bite. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Thank you for the time. Thanks for finding the closet. Uh, <laughs> yes, we got to get a picture of us in the we closet do. together. Yeah, well, thank you so much for having me on the show again. Yeah, I, I, I uh, always enjoy talking with you, and, and this is uh, this is a lot of fun. It's great having you in town. Maybe you'll just be my regular guest. Uh, that I am totally cool with that. Uh, like you know, we'd be like peanut butter and jelly right here, <laughs> like Starsky and Hutch, like Riggs and Murtaugh. Keep going. Um, uh, like like a Firefly Doctor Who crossover. That's how cool that would be. Thank you to Michael Herbert for making the cover art for this episode. Feel like growing your creative brain? Every episode of the Thinking Series features original art from medics. So if you want to play, send me a message and let's make something together. You always make me laugh at bad stuff. <laughs> I know, it's terrible, which you have to edit out, please. <laughs> Last time I, la I laughed at the doc that was a mentor that had polio. Remember that? Mm-hmm. 
Remember yes. me laughing at that? I, I do. I do. <laughs> I think you left it in. I did. <laughs> so sorry. Do you want to hear yourself? Uh, yeah, it's funny. I asked my dad about this. He does voiceover. And he, Your he's dad like, does voiceovers? Yeah. Uh, That's his job? Yeah. Uh, and I asked him, I was like, uh, you know, what do you think? Headphones or not? He said, there's two schools of uh, thought on this. One school is always use headphones. The other mm-hmm. school is never use headphones. It helps me make sure that I'm maintaining that distance. I think I don't project as much because I can hear it so easily right here. Like, oh, I do Yeah, if you're right up here. Uh, <laughs> that's true. You'd be like Jocko Willink, who just talks like with his face right on the microphone. He's like, you feel bad? Good. <laughs> Choke yourself.